Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks and the radio show with Everything Co-op, as you just heard. This morning, we have the pleasure of talking about and speaking about the legacy of Alan Gallant. Alan was in Baltimore, and he will be inducted in October to the Cooperative Hall of Fame. He passed on July the 24th, 2021, so we have his son, Samuel Gallant, here with us this morning. Good morning, Samuel. Hello. Nice to be here. Hi. Glad to have you, sir. And Stuart Reed, uh, who worked with Alan, particularly on the Food Co-op Initiative. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Vernon and Samuel. Thank you for being here. Uh, Samuel, being the son, uh, how would you how would you characterize your dad? I mean, what did what are some kinds of things that he taught you as a boy? <laughs> Well, thank you, Vernon and Stuart, for having me on. And thank you, Stuart, for nominating Alan for this uh, incredible honor. And uh, thanks for spending this time talking about him and and what he accomplished and and did through his career. Uh, I mean, he was uh, he was gracious. Um, He would thank you all as well for for this opportunity to talk about it. He uh, he taught that to me for sure. He also, you know, throughout his career and his life, definitely, um, I guess he taught me to to always be friends, lead with kindness. Even if there's hard things ahead, it can always be done with compassion and kindness. And um, and he was, uh, uh, even though he was kind of a large fellow and, and could be a bit, you know, bombastic, he was still uh, in, in, in all very... Uh, kind in his work and his life. Great. And did you see that working with him, Stuart? Oh, absolutely. Alan was one of the most supportive board members I have ever worked with and always recognizing the effort that myself and other staff put in and complimenting us for our work and just remembering that those those words made a big difference. And well, while we knew that other people felt the same way, uh, you know, he said it. He, he was out there and attaboy. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I heard him say attaboy, Stuart. And uh, uh, I still recall that fondly. To follow up a little bit, also just thinking about him a little bit more. He was he was a teacher. He was a mentor, um, not just to 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 me, obviously, but to uh, countless countless people that he came across in in his career, including Stewart, including uh, I mean, the list is is very long. Uh, Sandy Rosenblith, um, Arnold Montgomery, uh, people that he were he worked with, but also kind of taught uh, as well along the way. Actually, that's how. 
he and my mother met as he was teaching economics and accounting class and um and she was taking the class and that's how they met as well <laughs> okay. so he was also very much a teacher in his life um Stuart, did he teach you oh absolutely it, it always always look at all the sides of the issue don't take anything for granted um you know, it isn't always the popular belief system that's in place that's going to be what's most effective for you. I mean, he was he was the conscience of the board in some ways, but he was always, regardless of where he landed on an issue, he was always you know, fully behind us. We all, I think, learned a lot from what he could contribute. Okay, so in order to be a teacher, you've got to have some skills. Um, I taught in my career 12 years. So let's talk about those skills. Samuel, what kind of education did your father have? Formal. Um, he went to City College in Baltimore, which was a high school. Graduated, I don't know when, but he graduated from uh, Pennsylvania, the Wharton School in 55. He always likes to, he always would sing the song um, whenever he had the chance, which was Pennsylvania's push and drive comes from the class of 55. <laughs> and actually it was, uh, comes from the men of 55 originally because there weren't any women in that class oh. and uh, at Wharton, but uh, they changed it. And, um, you know, speaking of that sort of like inequality, um, that was a big driving force for him was was equality and equity and and you know bringing people up and, and giving them the resources you know educating them um he became a cpa and uh soon thereafter um he you know he was also a, a student of this uh, school of life you know he did he always did things he was always busy he always you know made himself available people that he was mentoring as well um and 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 the people that he worked with the various organizations and, and co-ops after college he worked for the family business which was a a, a food a wholesale company in the mid-atlantic a large one called be green his father worked there. His his mother was a green, and he was working there up until the the Martin Luther King riots. And well, when those riots happened, before you go, oh, go ahead. Before you go to MLK, uh, I want to go to this B Green and Company. So, mm -hmm. his father and his yeah. mother worked in B Green, and that's where they met. I understand. Well, um, I'm not sure if Sarah and Lou, Sarah Green and Lou Gallant met at B Green or not, but okay. they, they, they both ended up working for the family business. Okay. So when I talk about education, it looks like he got the education of the food business from the company with his father and mother working there. And after he graduated, he ended up working there. Is that right? Yes. And he, um, yeah, and, and I'm sorry to keep sort of jumping forward to, to the, um, I, I guess while working there, um, and, and prior to the MLK riots and then, and then post those riots, it really became clear. Um, you know, he started noticing the lack of minority ownership in, in the, the, the food, uh, industry in the grocery stores. And that really was his sort of inspiration, his, his origin story, his impetus for everything he did really after that, um, to make sure that 
That was his calling. He really devoted himself to providing economic opportunity for low-income and minority groups and um, ownership as well, to, uh, facilitating ownership of those grocery stores. So the reason I went back to, to B. Green and his father and, and mother working there and then he working there, so you get this formal education in, in the classroom of textbooks, um, but he had the, the informal education, which I think that sometimes it's much better because it gets in your bones of how the business works. Um, I would imagine around the dinner table, his parents may have talked about the business as he was a kid and growing up. So he knew the business. He knew the business of business and how you interact with people and so forth in, inside of business. Would you say, would you think that might be correct? Absolutely. Alan, um, when he was there, was doing, I believe, mostly logistics, you know, in, in delivering and things like that. His father was a salesman um, and traveled, actually, uh, had a territory into Virginia from Baltimore. Um, and his mother kept the books for this massive company. And that was his, uh, that was, I think, uh, the blending of his worlds and, and his philosophies was, uh, his mother was very much, you know, an accountant. She, she was not trained as an accountant, but she ran the books tight. And she taught him all kinds of things about numbers and P&Ls and, and cost of goods and all these different things, <laughs> the accounting terms that I don't know. He, he instilled <laughs> some of them in me, but you know, they, he, she kind of beat those into him. And then his father, my grandfather was very much a people person and loved sales and loved people and, and, and creating relationships and, and um, you know, making friends. And so that, those were sort of the, the two worlds that combined to make him who he was because he wasn't just a, you know, a charismatic teacher. He was also very good with numbers and really enjoyed breaking down P&Ls and, and balance sheets and, and looking at it, it, it with a critical eye. And he liked to call it forensic accounting as well. And, you know, he got a little creative sometimes. <laughs> okay. Stuart, how did, how did you see in working with him this knowledge and his training of both people, being a people person and the numbers, whether in forensic no, I, accounting or. <laughs> I, I'm glad he didn't turn the forensic eye on me too often when he uh, with our board reviewing financials i guess we we have pretty clean ones compared to a large company but yeah he yeah he kept an eye on stuff and definitely uh thought a lot about um particularly of the the funding side of our organization and now we how there's there's some opportunities out there that we needed and one of the things he kept coming back to and this is part of the people person as well i think is We've got a bunch of different organizations supporting food co-ops, and and you know what? There's economies that could happen if we worked together a bit more closely or did things a little differently. And he he wrote up little opinion papers and kept us thinking about: is there a better way to do this that uh, makes could help more people and do it more cost-effectively? So, yeah, he was he was always on top of that. Okay, so I got a teacher who's a mentor. He's a people person. He knows the numbers and he loves the numbers. He's a CPA, and that's hard to find. And quite frankly, it reminds me of Chuck Snyder. He was a numbers person 
in the accounting financial side and it turns out that I knew him as a people person. So they seemed like they had a, a lot in common and Chuck was one of the reasons for this program being in existence was wanting more and more people, particularly in low income communities, to know about co ops. So you started, I, I, I cut you off, uh, Sam, you know, I want to go back to your father being influenced by the Martin Luther King riots of the 60s. So tell tell me about your knowledge about him being influenced by that. Well, that was, I mean, after the riots, he essentially immediately left the Be Green. And from what I understand, he connected with an organization in D.C., the National Council for Business Opportunity, which um, they were a socially conscious um, uh, group of people that were trying to promote minority ownership of grocery stores and other essential uh, businesses. And, um, you know, that that inequity and inequality that uh, became so evident with the riots definitely was, uh, it stayed with him. Um, it's also something, you know, he taught um, to to his, his, I'm not his only child, he has three and a half others and um, he, uh, you know, a, a stepdaughter, my, my, oh, and, um, okay. but he, um, you know, he, he, he always was uh, quick to see, you know, problems. W-O-L, News Talk 1450 AM at 95.9 FM. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. And we have Sam Gallant with us today and Stuart Reed. Before the break, Sam was talking about his father and his father being influenced by the Martin Luther King riots and then going down to D.C. and joining the National Council for Equal business opportunities to help minorities and blacks get into food businesses and other business, other opportunities to, to overcome the, the issues of the past that Martin Luther King was fighting for. So, um, Sam, that's what you were talking about. Can you tell us where did that lead him once he got, so he's a white male out of Baltimore in the food business with a CPA and he's working for the family business, and it seems like that would have been the rest of his life because his mom and dad had worked in that business. It's a good business. It's a big business. He's got the formal education. He's got the informal education. He knows the business probably from inside out. You told us he was doing the logistics, and all of a sudden this thing happens, and it changes his world. He leaves that business and go out. Well, he he started, I know that this is a, co- a co-op show, but what Alan did was really sort of a blending of, of cooperatives and, and sort of putting co-ops and community development together. I mean, they aren't uh, apples and oranges, you know, or they might be apples and oranges, but they're still fruits, so you can compare the two. And uh, they definitely go hand in hand. They both go in a, a fruit salad very well together. And he actually started working with the Ford Foundation, as well as Sandy Rosenblith and Arnold Montgomery with the founding of LISC, Local Initiative Support Corporation, ending up working with commu- CDC's Community Development Corporations in mostly in rural 
areas to start. Uh, he was working in Mississippi, a, a, a youngish Jewish accountant uh, with big, thick Coke bottle glasses. If anybody knows him, uh, met him in person, he had the worst vision. Um, going down and, and working with CDCs in in the Mississippi Delta uh, in in the post King riot era uh, post King uh, era and um, really trying to take that um, you know that Bobby Kennedy and Ford Foundation sort of uh, you know that just the social and economic justice movement um, uh, and and the civil rights movement and and apply it in a very real world way that can be, you know, tangibly seen, whether it's, you know, building grocery stores in underserved communities and, and not just building them, but having them be built uh, and owned by the people in the community as well. Stuart, do you have any sense of when Alan got in the knowledge of co-ops? Because I would assume it wasn't taught at Wharton because it wasn't taught at Stanford in my MBA program. And it isn't taught a lot now in business schools and very few places but what i understand i think it came largely with his work in alaska uh working with the alaskan uh distribution networks that he set up with uh, as a cooperative system to serve the remote villages uh there now that was a huge project and from what I, everything i've heard very successful um i don't have any firsthand knowledge of it but i've heard him talk about it and uh it's, I mean, that work, the results of that work are continuing, I think, to this day. To follow up on that, Stuart and Vernon, um, yeah, actually, so the, his first real foyer into, into the world of co-ops was actually a part of a, uh, a training that he did with the CC Grains co-op in Seattle that actually led to the f uh, formation of Nutrisource, which in itself was a, a pretty innovative idea as well. It was a co-op of co-ops, of, of various uh, co-ops, including PCC, which is the uh, Puget Consumer Cooperative, as well as the CC Grains in Seattle and a number of others in, in Oregon and, and Washington State. I was born in Seattle in the late 70s. And, and then one of the ways that he got into Alaska and how that led to Alaska was, you know, well, Seattle was Alaska's uh, uh, you know, the capital of Alaska is how they used to joke um, that, you know, Seattle was really sort of the connection to Alaska and the rest of the United States was uh, one of the also the things that he did with Nutrisource was he brought in private equity partners, um, which was sort of a, 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 I guess, from what I understand at the time, rather uh Difficult. A, a, different, a different way of doing things with co-ops. And, and that was, Nutrisource was a, a huge success. And, uh, and, and again, the private capital that brought was, that was brought into Nutrisource had a connection to the Alaska commercial company. And then they brought him in to consult up there. And then they eventually, we moved up there and, and hired him. They hired him to uh, run the Alaska commercial company, which was a series of, maybe about five or six rural Alaska bush is what they call it, the bush of Alaska um, stores. And they were uh, and still are actually some of the last places in the United States where you can barter, where, you know, they would come, people would come in and, and trade furs and, and ivory and gold for uh, gasoline, ammunition and milk uh, and bread. 
And he grew that network of stores to like maybe a 20 some stores in, in villages from, you know, Bethel to Barrow to Nanilchik to, you know, um, all the way out onto the Aleutian Islands. And um, Stuart was touching on some of those things that he did up there, which was helping to conceive electric co-ops in rural Alaska, fishing co-ops, as well as he really sort of helped uh, revolutionize the shipping of things up there. Frontier Expeditors was the name of the company that sort of blossomed out of that was a, a, a shipping company uh, 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 to to get these goods and services out into or these goods out to the to the bush communities in alaska you know your father's history boy <laughs> he would be proud of you <laughs> well i i mean i i actually did my uh i learned to when i was a baby we were already going up to alaska when um he was still we were still living in in uh Seattle, but um, my uh, mother likes to joke that I learned to walk on, like a, in, in a in a little Cessna airplane in Alaska, and uh, yeah, so I was there as a child, and then all the way up through about age nine when we when he was uh, done with AC, let's say, and uh, the AC company, and uh, we moved back to Baltimore. That work he did in Alaska came back into a play recently. Laurie Chapu, who works in co-op development in North Dakota, has been doing a lot of research on distribution options for the remote communities of, of the upper Midwest and Plain states. And she, Alan, happily consulted with her on, on how they put together a, a network that could serve some of the most remote communities in Alaska. And, they were talking uh, just, I think, months before he passed away. I'm uh, still working on that project. Uh, and and he, obviously, he knew more about this than I do. I'm I'm only second hand, and and I love that he was still, you know, mentoring up until the end. And and from what I understand, maybe Stuart, you can expand on it. But how they sort of revolutionized the the distribution in that part of the in in Alaska in that state was called bypass yeah. mail that they would essentially like backhaul goods on mostly empty mail planes that were going out to the bush communities anyways and it was uh government subsidized because it was the u.s mail or i couldn't yeah. talk too much about that the incremental cost to add that freight was was minimal and it helped everybody and they're looking at the same kind of possibility of using postal capacity, excess capacity for distribution in other places. So. Fascinating. And, and that, I know we're coming up on a break, but that, that innovation was really drove Alan. He was, you know, the, the term is used a lot. He liked to think outside the box, but he really did. He loved to think about things critically in a different way is, uh, uh, you know, try to look at it from a different perspective. And that was uh, a way that he lived his life. He loved solving problems. So we have a, a man here that his parents worked in a food distribution company. He worked there. He went and got an uh, undergrad degree, came back and worked there. Martin Luther King riots changed his world. He saw the inequities of life. And then he started putting those that training into work. 
and to help low-income communities. We'll be right back and talk more about where he went to and what he did. Please don't touch that dial. WOL, where information is power. Welcome back. Co-op, and we're talking today about Alan Gallant and his legacy. This program is brought to you by the National Cooperative Bank. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities, by providing innovative financial and related services. So when we started on the break, we were talking about Alan Gallant's innovative thinking, his thinking outside of the box. And so, Stuart, I would like to ask you about this Blooming Pierce warehouse uh, went into a foundation what was that like what was that about in his career well blooming prairie warehouse was one of the last remaining successful cooperatively owned warehouses among the food co-op community and uh, a lot of them had sold their assets off to larger corporations or or folded because they failed and uh, while Blooming Prairie was well run and Alan was on the board there representing the, the co-op members, they started having the discussion of what their future was. And, and he, among others, said, the writing is on the wall. You know, uh, we're not going to be able to survive uh, in this industry at the size we are with the economies of scale that are required. And we have a choice. We can run it dry till it keep going as long as we can or take advantage of the assets we have sell the company now to united natural foods and then the owners will get some equity back out of that so they that, that was controversial for sure but they they did decide to make that choice and when the blooming prairie warehouse was sold influx of equity to all of the member co-ops was such that it fueled a lot of growth. They were able to do expansion projects, store improvements. It was a bit of a windfall of, you know, that equity. And in addition, there was, they had the foresight to suggest that they set up a foundation, which became the Blooming Prairie Foundation. And that the mission of that was to continue to support organic food production and distribution in, in the throughout the co-op network. And um, years later, as Food Co-op Initiative was approaching a milestone and we were still Food Co-op 500, we hadn't incorporated yet as a nonprofit. We were trying to figure out how we were gonna fund this to go forward, how if we were gonna survive at all. And Alan shocked everyone, I think, by coming up with a proposal that the Blooming Prairie Foundation could support us if we were to incorporate as a nonprofit, become a, a formal organization, and over a, over a five-year period, support us with $200,000 a year, a million dollars worth of funding. And he had the voice, the respect of the community, the people that made that decision, and that was what ensured that our organization had legs under it to get going and, and stay going as effectively as we have. And so he's, along with Chuck Snyder, I think Alan had as much to do with the ability of our organization to, to not just exist, but to grow and survive. And it was a huge contribution. So Samuel, uh, 
did you know about this part of your father's history? Did, were you at the dinner table talking to him or tell oh, us your oh, view of this? Oh, yeah. Uh, and speaking of that, like back in the day before cell phones and email, being a young person, once we moved back to Baltimore, I got to know everybody that he mentored and 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 worked with, including Jesse Singerman, you uh, uh, Stewart, and and Charlie Ryle from Shore Bank. So many people that would call the house phone, and I would answer and say hello. And and so I got to know everybody who called in, in that way a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, I'm yeah. stop, can I stop you? Say, are you telling me that this is a businessman that would get calls at home from other business people? I mean, I thought business people left their stuff, their work at business he, he took oh, it home i mean he worked out of the house yeah and he he you know he did all of this by the way out of the goodness of his heart there was very little he didn't get rich in the world of co-ops let's just say that so he you know he 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 just did this because it was it was, it was his passion and blooming prairie was definitely you know the blooming prairie foundation and uh fci the food co-op initiative were definitely the passion that he had later in life, you know, it, with, without those things, actually, it's possible he wouldn't have lived as long as he did. You always have to have, you know, that that passion, especially as you get older. Um, and he loved traveling to Milwaukee, Madison. Madison is where the the um, the the uh, meetings were. And I actually regret I never got to accompany him. But as he was getting older in the latter years prior to covid uh, you know, he couldn't travel as well on his own. And also he doesn't see well anyways in the first place. He would take various family members. Actually, Stuart, you've probably met my daughter um, who accompanied him. Maya? To, yep, Maya to uh, a know? couple of, of the meetings. And, and that sort of goes back also to um, his mentorship. He also took another one of his grandchildren and his daughter, my sister, Lisa, um, to various meetings as his sort of chaperone, but also to like, you know, nurture this, this, this mentality and this idea and this, these philosophies of, of, um, of cooperatives and community development. And, you know, the next generation of cooperatives, we, we can sort of talk more macro here, Vernon Stewart, I, I feel like is not as sort of well-rounded it's very much you know, more specified and, and specialized into various, you know, segments and compartmentalized up to this is what I'm, you know, an expert in. Whereas Alan was definitely sort of a, 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 a you know, a, a generalist. He had, you know, he would love to talk about, you know, food and co-ops and, C and CDCs were definitely his passion. But he could also, you know, he was actually involved in creating an ESOP at a, a resort in West Virginia called Cool Font. You know, so he was like... He was very much a, a consultant kind of mentality. He loved to problem solve again and help people. But yes, specifically the uh, Blooming Prairie Foundation and the uh, and FCI were something he was very, very proud of and loved to talk about and share with people. Actually, I, I've definitely looked at FCI's balance sheet before because he always, you know, <laughs> always like to say, hey, come here, look at this. You know? he, and he loved to share. He loved to always teach and share and and uh, so, yes, that was something he was he was immensely proud of in the latter years. So, Alan, for our guests, tell us what the FCI, the Food Co-op Initiative, is. What is this thing? Food Co-op Initiative? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, happy to talk about that. It, we started up uh, as a pilot project 
2005, I believe, uh, that was intended to help new co-ops, new food co-ops specifically, get off to a better start. Uh, there wasn't a strong support system or any um, real guidance available aside from a, a book that had been done uh, some time before that needed some updating. But anyway, we, there wasn't a training system in place. There wasn't a lot of, of resources available. So the idea was that we would provide some mentoring through volunteer networks of people that had experience in food co-ops and that we would provide some at the beginning where there was a they had some money set aside for seed grants that would help uh, a startup group fund their early organizing efforts and uh, it was required a match from the communities so it, it forced them to start engaging the community and doing outreach at the very start and uh, that grew into uh, the nonprofit organization we are now, Food Co-op Initiative, and uh, we're working at any given time with over 80 startup groups around the country. Wow. And, uh, and uh, we have a whole library now of resources. We do regular live webinars and conferences and have, have a world of support. And other organizations are also stepped up to help provide start startup support. So we're not in it alone, but... We're the only organization that provides free support and uh, concentrates on, on startup-specific development. So out of this, how many co-ops, food co-ops particularly, but other co-ops do you think that um, Alan Gallant helped to start? <laughs> well, it'd be hard to say. <laughs> yeah. That's why I, I mean, said think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, his... his Direct impact on the co-ops and food co-op initiative was probably somewhat limited because he wasn't providing the technical assistance, but he was providing the support for the organization as a board member, as a you know funding promoter, and and all of the other things that contributed. So you know if you assume that it hadn't wouldn't have happened without him, it's easily over a hundred startup food co-ops that have benefited more than that altogether, but, you know, just to throw a number out there. And then who knows how many more co-ops, Alaskan and others that I might not even know about. So a lot. What do you think, Sam? <laughs> and that's the, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, the reason it's incalculable. I mean, you could probably, you know, count the ones that he was like directly involved in, but the reason you can't really calculate it is because of his time spent teaching. It, he really, um, you know, taught a lot of people, whether it was, you know, even just as a consultant, he would come in and uh, consult and and uh, sort of just brought in as a mentor to people. Um, and that's sort of direct, but also indirect. But if you have, you know, a classroom full of people that you're teaching some uh, nonprofit accounting to, you don't know where those people go off and, and do in with the rest of their career necessarily always. Um, so I think as a, you know, as a, as an educator and an, an inspiration, he, uh, you know, had, had touched a lot of people and a lot of, you know, really excellent programs that, that if maybe some are still around in, in this country. We've talked about food co-ops, and I want to put it in context of there's four major sectors or sections of co-ops in the in the U.S. or in the world, and it, it depends on who owns and controls the business. So if the business is owned and controlled by the employees, it's called a worker co-op. If it's owned and controlled by the people that uses the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op. 
in a food co-op, and you can tell me if I'm right, Stuart, or not, but a food co-op is normally has normally been a consumer co-op where the people that shop in the store own the business. And there are some that have our worker co-ops. Uh, there's one in, in outside of D.C. called Glut. It used to be in D.C. It's a worker co-op. The, the people that work there own it. And then I talked to one person in Seattle that it was a hybrid. It was both a worker co-op and a consumer co-op that both owned the business. And then a lot of farmers uh, will use the other two type. One is called a marketing co-op or producer co-op that's interchangeable. Uh, Cabot Creamery is one, Ocean Spray is another. There are businesses where the farmers will bring their products and that company will create and produce other things um, to take the milk and make cheese or yogurt or whatever. And the other one that farmers use a lot is a purchasing co-op. Farmers would come together and then they would buy things that they need, fertilizers, seed, tractors, whatever they might need, and to produce whatever they're going to produce. I'm finding the artists are beginning to use the producer co-op. Uh, there's one in Pittsburgh, uh, and I spoke to uh, one and in, in did shopping at one in Zuni Pueblo in New Mexico of Native Americans where the artists get together and create a storefront. They couldn't do it individually, but they could pool their resources. And in the one in, in, in Zuni, they, they have they do their creativity in the back of the storefront. So they have a place and they buy the, the goods. So it's a combination of purchasing co-op and a consumer co-op. So Alan was mainly in the food co-op world, but in this whole distribution, I would say it's not only was he in the consumer world, but he was probably in the, the, the other different worlds. I want to make that and I want to come back and talk about that. But before I do, I'd like to talk about values and principles because we've already talked about Alan's value, people person, okay, people person. Also, numbers. And the values of co-ops, I like the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others. Or I like to think of caring for one another, whether the golden rule piece of it. So when we get back, we're going to talk about the different sectors, the values, and about the ecosystem and the future. We'll be right back. 1450 WOL, where information is power. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, information is power, and that's why we have this program to give you the information about co-op so that you may go out and start one with your fr uh, friends or colleagues, or you go shop at one, like in a food co-op, to help them. Um, take this information. Uh, Stuart, if they wanted to get a hold to uh, food cooperative initiatives because they want to start a co-op, how would they do that? How would they get the information? Sure. The the easiest way is to go straight to our website, which is simply FCI, the initials of Food Co-op Initiative, fci.coop. And uh, there's contact information there. We've got a resource library with all kinds of information about how to get started and what, it, what the development process looks like. You can sign up for our live webinar series, um, all kinds of amazing amount of material there. And the con we do encourage people to take advantage of the contact us link, and, and that'll reach out to me. Most of the time, I'll be the one who will take care of first contacts and talk about what we can do for them and their specific projects. But 
uh, one of us for sure will get back and, and help people get started. So when we, we talk about um, Alan Gallant uh, being a people person and he got inspired, he changed his whole world with the Martin Luther King riots after to, to go out and help lower income communities. Do you think, uh, Samuel, that uh, these values of honesty, openness, social responsibility, and caring for others would be a, one of the reasons he latched on to co-ops? Oh, 100%. Um, I think that that's a, yeah, I mean, going back to the, the sort of epiphany of, of the MLK riots for him being uh, that sort of launching point for um, all of those values and, and, and more. Um, he was, uh, you know, passionate. He was passionate about everything he did and, um, uh, whether that was also, um, you know, starting a, a synagogue, which he has done before as well. And, 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 you know, being integral and in, in making, uh, b- building things from the ground up. He loved to build, um, both, both, uh, um, you know, in his work, but also in his life, he loved, you know, tinkering and building things. He, he uh, you know, he did know which end of the hammer to use, um, uh, even though he couldn't <laughs> see me. very well. He still, had, he, he still had a little bit of, of you know, uh, uh, that, that sort of building spirit in, in life, in all aspects of his life and, and building community and, and building things for, you know, to be better um in in the next generation and, and to yeah the he definitely lived his life with the golden rule and he um he treated others with the utmost respect even when things were hard like i think we started the hour saying you know like sometimes like you know the closing of the berkeley co-op was you know it was that was a hard thing to do but it was also you know done with the utmost sort of respect um for for everyone involved and um he was idealistic but he was also realistic and he really sort of lived his his life by that almost that mantra you know idealism but and and it, that goes back to the sort of the two sides of the coin of you know the people person and the accountant you know you can be idealistic and be friends with everyone but you also have to be very much realistic at the same time very the much numbers so. have to add up so on the program when we first got started uh nine years ago nine octobers ago uh, we had a guy on a program called Papa Sin from Senegal, and he worked for NCBA Clusa. He did a, a lot of things, but he said co-ops were uh, created to solve community problems. If there was no community problem, there was no need for a co-op. So you mentioned a couple of times, Sam, that uh, community development, and that's what, to me, co-ops are all about. And when we start talking about food deserts, there's a community problem. And it's how you get the community together to develop the community so that the community can solve the problem by creating a food co-op. Stuart, do you agree with that? Oh, yeah. We're working increasingly with uh, co-op startups and, and what food apartheid areas, food deserts, whatever term people prefer. But uh, and in black led groups often as well. So we're learning. We're learning a lot by getting in our feet into this. And I'd say we're learning more than we're teaching right now, but there's a huge demand. And this was always a challenge. I mean, Alan acknowledged that when we first started 
putting resources toward increasing our effectiveness in the area. He said, it's going to be really hard. Uh, we've tried doing development work before and it hasn't always worked. So we have to look at it a different approach and if we're going to make it work. And that's that's what we've tried to do. But you know, his, his experience working in the field was a big guiding voice to our board in deciding how we were going to approach this. So I, I want to and, come back and talk about some of those issues, but Sam, you go ahead and say whatever you're going to say, because I think you're going to answer my question. <laughs> I was going to oh, I don't know. Actually, I, I was thinking about all kinds of things, but uh, he, you know, he was a philanthropist um, and it, it, what little money he had, he gave it away, you know, and he was, uh, he encouraged philanthropic, you know, attitude. And actually, he grew up knowing um, the Weinbergs, uh, the Harry and Jeanette Weinbergs. He was son, uh, friends with their son growing up. And, you know, I think that knowing them also and, and seeing the, the the amount of money that they around to, to good things was important uh, in his sort of development of those ideals of, of really trying to, to help people and and. and you know, have people help themselves as well. And, um, and he was, um, you know, he was trying to do it in, in different ways and in innovative ways and, and money again, coming back to the accountant part of him was part of that. He had different ideas about how to fund different programs. And, and I think that that was the thing he loved the most about the blooming prairie foundation was being able to just <laughs> give that money away and say, yes, you this money, you do this thing, you have a great idea, go with it. Yeah, you answered it. Now, co-ops are people first, planet second, and it sounds like that with your, your dad, Sam, was people first. Then the social responsibility, environmental is the number one decision maker. I was taught profit, 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 profit was the first three things for capitalistic models. Stuart, did you see this people first planet in Allen? Did you see that materialize? Is that how you saw him? And, and is that what cooperative initiative? Well, as a non need a co op that want a co op to be able to do it effectively. And that, that's the only reason we exist is to help communities that need that service uh, do it well and hopefully be a successful addition to their community. That, helps solve problems, makes the community stronger. So that's, and that, that was why he was such a strong supporter of what we did, because it, it matched his values. Well, thank you all for tuning in to Everything Co-op, hosted by Vernon Oaks. You've been listening to Sam Gallant, son of Alan Gallant, who will be inducted into the Co-op Hall of Fame October 6th at the CDF event, and Stuart Reed, Executive Director of Food Co-op Initiative. Thanks for listening, and as Vernon always says, work cooperatively. See you next week.